It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. Amber's back, guys. Hooray. We know that you enjoyed Barb the Librarian, or as our patrons will come to know her, the Librarian. Love it. I still love it. It makes me smile. <laughs> it's a very, very wonderful nickname. I, I do love it too. But we are so happy to have Amber back too. And again, thank you to, to the Librarian. Thanks, for, Librarian. For doing such a good job filling in for our Butch Cassidy episode. So we have quite a tale for you this week. Quite a quite tale. Quite a tale. But first, as always, do not forget about our Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where you, for just five bucks a month, can get our weekly bonus episodes as our old tiny Crimeys, where one of us tells the other a true crime tale from history that they don't know. Amber, who did I tell you about this week? Little Dick. Little Dick, who you will be shocked to know is also known as Mary Avery, 13. Fantastic. It was a fascinating tale. As soon as I saw it, I was just immediately drawn to it because I needed to tell you that story. I feel like that was me in a past life. I really do. Yeah, I I agree with you. That was probably a big reason that I felt like I needed to tell you that story. I was like, Amber will identify with this quite strongly. I, I did. I did. <laughs> so yeah, you get those and you also get our extra, extra bonus episodes. We do those once a month. It's a full length episode where we each tell a story, and then we bring in also a special guest to tell a story along some theme. And August's theme was California crimes. California. Mm. <laughs> Criming it up California style. <laughs> so yeah, check that out. We're having a really great time over there. And we we just seriously have so much fun. It's It's one of those things where... It's a little different from the regular episode because I know that you don't know about the story and there's that extra feeling of, oh, wait until she hears about this part. <laughs> that is one thing we really enjoy doing is surprising each other. Yeah, wait until she hears about this 13-year-old girl pulling off an Ocean's Eleven-style heist. <laughs> Hooray! So yeah, come over there, check it out. Links in the show notes, as always. And so, we are going to be talking this week... Uh, about, well, I'll say that my episode notes are titled, Everybody's Making Hazard Puns. True. <laughs> yes. Linda Burfield Hazard and her sanitarium. 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 Finger quotes. Right. So I don't normally do this, but reading this book was actually quite an experience for me. So I want to give a little trigger warning we're not necessarily going to be talking about eating disorders, but we are going to be talking a lot about not eating. And I don't necessarily have an eating disorder. I have in the past, I'll admit, kind of flirted with them. And, you know, all of us struggle with body image issues. So yeah, there may have been a day when I just drank tomato juice this past week uh, as I was reading the book. <laughs> so just if that's something that you struggle with, you might want to either go slow or, you know, consider going back into our archives and finding something else. Just just letting you know, it's not always easy to hear this stuff. Yeah. Um, so what I did is because I was uh, at the beach is I uh, did not fast in the same way, but I did have a day where I drank nothing but rum punch. 
So 10 out of 10 would recommend. That's much better than my tomato juice. It's probably tastier too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So before we get into Linda Burfield Hazard, I want to discuss this little thing that I found. When I first started reading Starvation Heights, I, I immediately went and started looking at the newspapers for anything I could find about sanitariums. I just, I can't read a book straight through anymore. I have to go to newspapers.com or Chronicling America. Fall down a rabbit hole. And fall down the rabbit hole. So I found this in the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington in September 1910. It was in the classified ads. And under the heading, Sanitariums, you might see something like this. Bergen Sanitarium, human bake oven and electrical massage. Specialist in rheumatic and nervous affections, free consultation. So I saw that human bake oven and I was like, well, there's a Google search I don't really want to do. No, it's okay. Jackson did it for me. We were, we were going to a concert and we were having a beer beforehand. And I, as soon as I showed him that, he was like, well, to the Google I go because he's one of us. He is one of us. So he looked it up and here is a quote, a description of this particular procedure. Just to give you a taste of some of the kind of bonkers shit that people were doing in the name of help. The patient is placed upon a table which is pulled out on rollers. And after being robed in Turkish bathrobe, socks, mittens, etc., is shoved back into the oven. All but the head is then subjected to an intense dry heat, which can be increased to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Yo, yo. That is not okay. That is not okay. At all. But Amber, the heat drives the germs from the blood and removes pain in a most remarkable manner by producing profuse but comfortable perspiration. Okay, so we actually still do this in a way today. So I had a friend that did um, MMA fighting, right? And to make weight and stuff like that, he would, like, wrap himself in trash bags and then exercise profusely so he was just pouring sweat to get rid of all the water weight to make the weight. And they weigh you in, like... 24 or 48 hours before the fight, and then you can eat and, and shovel in all the, the fluids again to build back up. But um, that is very dangerous and very, very bad for your body. Jackson was a wrestler in high school. So he probably had to do something similar. Where the he would exact, have to... the exact same thing. It is not safe. As a teenager, he was being made to do this. As a teenager. It, it, is, it is very unsafe. You are dehydrating your body. And if you go too far, your organs shut down. And if you cook them to 500 degrees, I imagine that you're just dead. Because tell you what, if, if anyone has an oven, how often have you ever put it on 500 degrees? Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even know if ours goes that high. I mean, it probably does. But I've never put it there. So I don't know. That's insanity. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah. So we're like drinking before the concert. And we're like, Wow. People did nutty things. Yeah, like seriously, if, if you want to do that, just wear a sweater in like Vegas summer. Yeah, there you go. That's that's about as safe as, as you can do it without death. And even then you'd probably still pass out. Yeah, yeah. I also love the fact that they also put socks and mittens. Socks and mittens. And then they're going to stick you in an oven and you're paying them money to do this to you. Exactly, which is the point, don't you know? <laughs> so speaking of people who had someone and many people paying them money to do something absurd and unhealthy, let's talk about Linda Burfield Hazard. 
So she was born Linda Burfield in Carver County, Minnesota, December 18, 1867. Her father was American. Her mother was born in Canada. So we can half blame Canada on this one. Hey. Ah, fuck you, Canada. <laughs> Look what you did. Half of it, 50%. So in Starvation Heights, Greg Olson has her the oldest of seven. But some census records reported on Finding Grave have her as the sixth of 13 children. Which, if it was the case, means her mother was, according to the dates there, popping out kids almost every year with one six-year break in the 1860s. Want to guess why that was? Because her husband died? No. uh, Well, but her husband did have a veteran star on his grave eventually. Oh, her husband was away at war. Yes, her husband was away at war, so I imagine Well, that's... good on her for not popping any kids out while he was away. <laughs> yeah, she got a nice break, too. I bet her uterus needed the recovery time. Yeah, right. And uh, her father was also a Pennsylvania man, born in Belfont. Huh. So, there's that. I guess we can also half blame Pennsylvania. Damn it! Fuck you, Pennsylvania. Damn it! So. Fuck everybody. Oh, yeah. Amber's still very angry about the 500 degrees. She can't I handle this. I, I'm still just ferociously mad at, <laughs> well, and, and on on Linda Burfield Hazard, that bitch. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to go back in time and throat punch her several times. Yeah, I wanted to do that, like, a lot. I was desperate for a time machine reading this book and doing all this research, so. Well, and and I also, I wanted to slap so many people. There are so many people I want to go back in time and slap. So, if anyone has the technology, please give it to me so that I can go slap historical figures. That would be awesome. Build me a time machine so I can slap (laughs) bitches everywhere. I'm going to punch Hitler in the balls. Yes, absolutely. So the family was largely vegetarian, and it seemed like there was one bad experience with a doctor when Linda Burfield was young, gave an unnecessary prescription and said that all the children had some sort of parasite, even though they seemed fine on the outside. And this led her to believe that natural medicine was the best, the absolute everything, And uh, she also says that thanks to that encounter and what the medicine did to her, she had to use enemas daily her whole life. And get ready, because I'm going to say the word enemas like a lot. Yeah, I think she really just had like a butthole fetish. Yeah, I think so. I think that's really what this this boils down to, is she really liked anal. (laughs) And she wanted everyone else to also really like anal. But you can't like anal if you're stopped up from eating meat. Yep, well, there you go, I guess. It all comes together there. It's all about the butt sex. So when she was about 20, she got married to Edwin A. Perry. He was 32 and a farmer. But she was just always in poor health, especially digestively speaking, according to her. She had two kids with Irwin Perry. That was Roland and Nina. Nina just kind of fell off the map. She was... She was still kind of around somewhere, but she was barely mentioned. Like, there was some sort of estrangement once once Nina kind of came of age, I think. Yes, because Nina probably was smarter than her mother. Probably, yeah. Another person who was also probably smarter than her was uh, her husband, Erwin Perry. He left her probably in 1898, and she sent her kids to live with her mother after that because she had a career to get into, and... Nobody had told any woman at that point that you could have it all. (laughs) So 
She started as a nurse and then became an osteopath. And I feel like it's best to use, instead of a modern definition, which might be sort of similar, it's best to use her own definition straight from her book. Okay. Of what an osteopath is and does. That science or system of healing which treats disease of the human body by manual therapeutics for the stimulation of the remedial forces within the body itself, for the correction of misplaced tissue, and for the removal of obstructions or interferences with the fluids of the body, all without the internal administration of drugs or medicine. That was all one sentence. Learn to use a period. I'm going to tell you guys what, what this osteopath really believes. Drugs are bad. Enemas are good. That is basically the whole thing. That's basically the whole thing. Yeah, it basically is. Drugs are bad. Enemas good. Get all the stuff out of your butt <laughs> and you'll feel so much better. And also she would became a big fan of fasting. Mm. So she started studying under Dr. Edward Hookie. I knew I was going to screw that one up. Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey who was a big proponent of fasting, they did disagree on the necessity of enemas. You know what? Let's just do this. I'm ready to kill off our whole audience. Take a drink every time I say enema. Oh, my God. (laughs) We won't have any listeners a lot. (laughs) Enema! (laughs) Oh, hell. Do you think I could get sued by Blink-182 if we titled this episode Enema of the State? Because wasn't that one of their albums? I think it was. (laughs) I think it was. It was the one with the nurse on the cover. (laughs) With the rubber glove. (laughs) Amber's looking it up. So... The fasting cure, Linda style, was nothing but vegetable broth and juice for days to weeks or even as long as two months. And then afterwards, you build back up with vegetables and goat milk. Her idea behind this was basically that all disease is based in the digestive system. And the body in general is filled with impurities. So fasting would give both the digestive system a rest and flush the impurities out, cleansing the body. And there were also in her treatment painful massages and long enemas. This is from her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, written in 1908. I hated reading this so much. The body is not to be thought of as ill in a special locality or in an individualized organ. It is sick as a whole, though the signs of its ailment are more visible or more severely expressed in one locality or another. Illness results when balance no longer exists between nutrition and elimination, with the consequence that the blood current is vitiated at its source, the resistive powers lowered, and germ soil produced. One remedy alone can cope with this condition, and it is that which nature suggests and employs. Elimination of the poisonous products of digestive ferment and rest for organs that have been functioning under stress. By functioning under stress, she means actually processing food like they're meant to be doing she is absolutely every person's worst enema absolutely that might work and drink but yes enema of the state is taken by blink 182 and i feel like that might be a copyright thing so this in linda's philosophy is nature's remedy which will cure everything from toothache to cancer to insanity (sighs) okay toothache Adama, <laughs> right? In her book, she talks about how she fasted a one-year-old child for stomach and intestinal trouble. It was a six-day fast, uh, lasted 
until the baby was 14 and a half pounds, which babies should be 19 to 21 pounds at that age in order just to hit the 50th percentile. And the kid was 25 pounds eight months after the fast, which is actually average, but I still can't imagine starving a one-year-old for for six days. That's awful, actually. Very terrible. And uh, don't ever do that. It's horrifying. It really is. She fasted at least one pregnant woman. That one went for 22 days. And um, surprised that she did not kill two people that time. I'm, I'm surprised that the pregnant woman didn't kill her. I mean, right? The chart in her own book lists 10 patients with the length of the fast, the weight at the beginning, and the end. She says the average loss is one pound per day, which it's generally advised to lose one to two pounds per week, according to the mayonnaise clinic. Still calling it that. I love it. I love it. But yeah, that is that is a dangerous amount of weight, and it is also not good No, it's very, very bad. Uh, The lowest weight at the end of one of these fasts, and just just from the ones she put in the book, was 78 pounds down from 109. The longest fast was 50 days, and the biggest loss was 54 pounds, which those were the same. It was 50 days and a a 54-pound loss. That's too much. That's incredibly unhealthy. But she says, it is questionable whether... In a conscious being, not afflicted with organic defect, or not situated so that food cannot be supplied when hunger calls, death has ever resulted from starvation. Yeah, no, you've never died of starvation yet. Yeah, nobody has ever died of starvation because somebody was literally telling them that they weren't allowed to eat, which is kind of the definition of food cannot be supplied when hunger calls. It's the organic defect that is the big part of that whole philosophy and idea of hers because then if anybody dies it's not of starvation it's because they were already too sick and the fast couldn't help them because they were beyond help it wasn't her fault never never so in 1901 she was advertising in minneapolis and you would see this in the newspaper under the classifieds dr linda burfield perry suggestive therapeutics Treats all nervous diseases, women, liquor habit, vices, and painless childbirth. I don't even know how, how, how does a fast make, because it's all lies. No, I get it. I get it. A fast can make childbirth painless because you'll be passed out from hunger. There you go. There we go. So you're not even conscious. She had patients coming in and the first death that made waves was November, 1902, Gertrude Young, age 41, was on day 39 of a 40-day fast, had been trying to mitigate results of a stroke or two that she had had in the past, and despite even the coroner coming and saying that she should stop the fast when she got violently ill, she either kept going, according to the newspapers, or according to Linda Burfield, she ate too freely. So she stopped the fast, ate too freely, and then she was 105 pounds when she died. The coroner said the cause of death was starvation. <laughs> and when they did the autopsy, they found that basically her body had almost no blood in it. Wow. Yeah, right? I mean, that's something. 
Also something is the fact that several of her jewels were missing upon her death. Mm. So there was some talk of prosecuting Linda Burfield, but nothing came of it. And then another thing is this is kind of harder to find in the newspapers because she's referred to as a woman physician in many of them, but not by her name. How dare she have a name? Right, exactly. A woman physician. A woman physician. By 1903, she's giving lectures on the merits of fasting. In the summer of that year, there's an article about her cure in the St. Paul Globe on page three. So people are reading this. And what they're also reading, right next to that, was an article on how food strengthens the mother and makes milk for the baby, which was actually a not very thinly veiled ad for grape nuts. And then... Next to that is what I'm calling the poison section of the newspaper with three separate articles about recent poisonings. Nice. I tried to track that down because I was curious if there was actually maybe a serial killer going around or if somebody had poisoned Tylenol-style, poisoned a bunch of food at the market. Aquatofana. Aquatofana, maybe, yeah. Except that a few women ended up being victims, too. I couldn't find any connections, but it was definitely something for it to be like, poison, poison, poison in every headline on like half of a page. It was just very common to poison people. And also you're like, do I eat? Do I not eat? I don't know. (laughs) If I eat the grape nuts, I'll be stronger, but maybe the grape nuts are poisoned or maybe I shouldn't eat them because then I'll need more enemas. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm not even drinking alcohol. I would fall over by the end of this episode. (laughs) stop doing it soon. I mean, I have to have to keep saying enema. It's part of it, but so soon after that, her name is popping up in other articles in Minneapolis area newspapers. These are not necessarily directly related to her practice as a doctor. Wait, sorry. Quote, quote, doctor. Quote, quote, yeah. These are related to a man. That man uh, goes by a couple names. Seems like one of his names was Samuel Hargrave. He was said to have married Viva C. Fitchpatrick, was her maiden name. But she was a twice-divorced daughter of an Iowa State senator. And in March 1903, not long after marrying her, he deserted her. The complaint alleges that his first wife lives in New York and further charges that he is now living with the third wife. Formerly, Miss Linda Burfield. Oh. Whom he'd married in the fall of 1903. So he had three wives at once and zero divorces. Seems like a winner. Yes. He also goes by the name Samuel Hazard. Which is the name that they decided to stick with. Apparently, yes. He is described as six feet tall and a perfect Gibson model. And a debonair West Pointer as well as the gay and handsome Mr. Hazard. He's said to be an insurance agent with extensive contacts in Minneapolis. And it's also claimed that he's a deserter and likely deserted the military about the same time that he deserted wife number one. There you go. So he's arrested on charges of bigamy. Bail is set at $1,500, which is about $47,000 today, and he does not bail out. So regarding Linda and her knowledge of this, the paper says she was familiar with the former ventures of her husband and the other women and married him in spite of them. So she knew 
And wifey number two says that Linda met them when she came to their boarding house to take care of a patient there. Wife number two is Viva. And the paper says, this was actually Viva talking. Mrs. Burfield seemed to take a fancy to Sam right away, and seldom a day passed that she did not come up to the house. Still, I did not enjoy the friendship, especially as I received anonymous notes telling me all sorts of things about my husband and about things he had said about me. When I told him of those, he always seemed indignant and assured me his entire love was mine and only mine. One day, to satisfy me, he wrote a note to Mrs. Burfield telling her that all business and social relations must cease as he thought too much of his wife to subject her to further annoyance. But then he just kind of like goes away for a couple of days. And when he comes back, he's like, we're not married. We were never married. And he tries to convince her that it was all just fake. A sham. Mm-hmm. Did he tell her about the first wife? No, she just came out of the woodwork after all this stuff started coming out. Oh, okay. It's kind of funny. She's just like, hey, also uh, a wife of his. So Because I feel like that would have been an easy out. Like, we're not married because I'm still married to some broad in New York. Sorry. Yeah, that would have been, but he t- tried to tell her that he wasn't married to her after he'd married Linda Burfield. So he'd still be admitting to bigamy. Yeah. <laughs> if he uses wife number one as an excuse to get out of his marriage with wife number two, he's still committing bigamy with wife number three. Man, that, that is a life. That is an interesting life. And Linda Burfield Hazard says to the paper of the arrest... Even if he goes to the pen, he is still my husband and will be when he returns. Ours was a love match, pure and simple, and I am sure of his respect as well as of his love. So, yeah, she's just pretty dead set on this to the extent that she starts doing some of her own investigating to try to get him off the hook for these charges. She goes to the court commissioner that was said to have performed the marriage between Samuel and Viva, number two, and pretends to be an author working on a book about marriage and divorce. She needed information on marriages he performed. And then that was where she said she found evidence that there had been no marriage between Sam and Viva. And the commissioner finds out he'd been tricked and he goes, well, she's one smooth talker. We're going to find out that yes, she is, unfortunately. The trial starts... And the papers are freaking hilarious. I love some of the phrasing here. The dashing military man accused of overzealousness in matrimonial matters. Overzealousness. (laughs) Yeah, yep. Was very nervous as he made his way through the gaping crowd. His wanted debonair manner was not absent, however. He courteously offered Linda Burfield Hazard and a lady friend a seat before taking one himself. So Viva, wife number two, was there as well. And there was some scuttlebutt that if Samuel was convicted, Linda might get charged as well because she'd admitted to the papers that she had knowledge of his marriage. And the jury was out. Do you want to guess how long the jury was out for this this bigamy charge? How long does it take to smoke a cigarette? Um, We'll say 23 minutes. Actually, that's how long you decide whether or not to send a man to the gallows. Oh, okay. That's how long that takes. In order to decide whether a man will spend like one to five years in prison, five hours. 
Seriously? I know. I freaked out when I read that. I was like shouting at Jackson in the office. I was like, how many freaking murder trials where somebody ends up dying? Somebody ends up being executed? Have they spent the length of a cigar yeah. actually debating? Five hours. Five hours for this one. Yep. Yep. So like I said, the sentence can go from one to five years. And even Viva, oh my gosh said she wished she could do the time for, quote, her poor boy. What is so special? There is nothing special about a man that's married to three women. I'm sorry. <sighs> she says, isn't there some way they can let him off? You're the one who brought the charges. Well, her father was influential in that, too. But, like, re regardless, so I this actually kind of relates. I saw a meme today. And it was about, like, fight for your man, and, and after you, you win against one girl, you realize that there's more girls, and it's a tournament or something, and just keep fighting. I'm like, no, don't, what? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Stop it. Don't. If he doesn't realize that you're worth it, get the hell away, because he's a piece of shit. Exactly. Yes. And exactly. It, go it goes both ways. It goes the other way for men and women. Like, if yes. there are others in your way... Go somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> Fully agree. I'm 100% on board with this. I don't understand. Like, how are you sitting next to this man being like, well, she can have him and I hope he doesn't get any time for... No, he's a piece of garbage and everybody should leave his ass behind. Absolutely. 100%. Wife number one, number two, and number three. You all go and form like a superhero team or something like that or a girl band or a girl gang or something like that. Do you remember the first wives club? Do that. Do that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're all white and dance around to like doo-wop songs or something. Whatever happened. I haven't seen that movie in many years, but I, I have some memories. <laughs> and do that. Don't do this fighting over him, which continues. And, of uh. course, Linda is still upset. She's very upset when she finds out that he's been sentenced and, and found guilty. Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, who has at all times been exceedingly talkative, was prostrated with grief and had nothing to say. She talked to her husband in the jail office, muttering between the sobs words about injustice and the woman who had caused her all the trouble. You married her husband! Yes, it was her husband first. Yes. You could have left him alone, and this would never have happened. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, is that if found not guilty, he still would have been taken right back to jail because there were government agents waiting to arrest him for forging and cashing government vouchers. He was also very in debt to the military because he kept on taking money from them for certain, you know, like things he needed to buy and then just running away, <laughs> not paying it back. He was he was in debt to everyone. He liked fancy clothing and he would just never pay the bill for anything oh, ever. That's one way to do it. And then he left a lot of it in his first wife's hands after he did a whole bunch of that. So also like that same week. Viva found out that she was inheriting a fortune from her uncle. You picked the wrong star to hit your wagon to, Samuel. <laughs> wrong star. So the man uh, convicted of having more than enough wives, as one newspaper put it, was sentenced to two years. The journalists were having so much fun with these, these leads. It delighted me. Then there's some drama when Linda comes to the jail to visit him, and he's usually in the, the jail library, but he's not there. 
his stuff is there, his books that he's been looking through, trying to find a way to appeal this and everything. And there's also a stack of love letters from Viva. <sighs> right? So Linda swooned. But we don't know whether that was from the shock or from the hunger from the fast. Could have gone either way. 50-50. Viva then prevails. And it seems for a while like she'll get Samuel and continue to be his wife. She's visiting him in jail. She gets Linda barred from the visitors list. And for the next two years while he's in prison, Viva and Samuel are together. Then he gets out. And Viva is waiting. And he goes to Linda. Wow. Right? So there's not much in the Minneapolis papers for a little while there about her. The only thing really is that her first husband was also in court. He had committed arson in 1906 to help his lover, who had at least two different names, and ran a business. This was after the business she ran where she practiced clairvoyancy, of course. So that was, uh, he went on an interesting path as well. Everybody's following very, very jagged, interesting paths. But by 1908, Linda Hazard, as we will now call her, was showing up in the newspapers internationally. In an article titled Perfect Health that was ran in a newspaper in Sydney, uh, she shows up. Her book actually is discussed in a column in 1909 and then in a gossip column sort of the next year it's called gossip but it's just one writer telling a story that takes several columns and the tone is sort of as if you're you've been reading all along and you're very familiar with this person's life she, she tells stories i think it's a she about her teenage cousin john who's dying of diabetes which she calls a horrible hopeless disease and she this author of the column tries to get him on board with her book, which is titled No Breakfast. But this doesn't work at first. She says, But when one is not yet 18 and has grown up with all the modern prejudices, it isn't easy to take on new fads. Then again, I'm not an MD, and I don't know much about physiology, and for me to stand up against the whole medical world and to, and to declare that they were all wrong was heresy. The doctor's superstition is very, very old and very, very deep. And I'm only a layman, only a journalist. And why should I dare to set myself up in opposition to the whole world? No, not the whole world. For John had Dr. Linda Hazard's book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease. And that told marvelous stories about my theories. She does convince him. He fasts for 36 days and loses 38 pounds. He was only 137 to begin with. Wow. He survives according to her, but I don't believe her, actually. So, Also, one delightful thing about this article was where they misspelled Hazard as Haggard. I was like, okay, I can find some choice somewhere. She's not showing up in the Minneapolis papers because she, at this point in time, is in Washington State. At some point, Linda and Samuel, those lovebirds who were meant to be, moved out west. They set up business in Seattle and we're kind of working on plans to build a sanitarium in a little town called Olala. It was Wilderness Heights. It was going to be five cabins at first that would be expanded to 25 eventually, and then a big hospital-type structure. So they could just starve a ton of people to death all at once. Very yeah. efficient. Yes. Yeah, very efficient. 
We do know, speaking of starved to death, that a patient, Lenora J. Wilcox, died under her care in 1907 in Washington State. She was 37. Then Daisy Maud Hagland died in 1908 under Hazard's care. I feel like we shouldn't call it care anymore. It really isn't. I feel like there should definitely be sarcastic quotes around that. In 1909, Blanche B. Tyndall and Viola Heaton died under Hazard's care. Eugene Stanley Wakelin was under her care, and he also died not of a health concern, but of a bullet. He had granted Linda Hazard power of attorney over his estate. Of course he did. Yeah, there are questions as to who fired that bullet. Mm-hmm. No answers, but there are questions. In 1910... Lydia Maud Whitney, 43, passed away under Hazard's care. She had two children. And also Earl Edward Erdman. A hard name to say, and I'm impressed that I got it out. Good job. So let's tell a little story about Erdman. March 1910. Now, Erdman was a civil engineer who had had some digestion problems, indigestion mainly, ended up in Hazard's care. He was 24 years of age when he wasted away to nothing after three weeks of fasting. According to Hazard, he was 115 pounds and 5'11 when he came to her. So that is not a man who should be fasting. No. When he came to her, he was that weight. His friends rescued him from her, took him to the hospital. The doctors ordered a blood transfusion, but he died before they could give it to him. The autopsy stated that he died of starvation. He left behind a diary. And the Oregon Daily Journal gives us a little peek at that. When Erdman came under the influence of the starvation specialist, according to the diary, he was in a cheerful frame of mind. The effects of the treatment are shown plainly by such notations as blue, wretched, despondent, weak, sick, and on the last day, The day before he died, it is written, dying. Wow. Yes. It's scary how they know. I mean, obviously they know. They can feel their body starting to fail. But it's really scary to have it just written in plain ink like that. Dying. Dying. Yeah, he knew. It's also revealed at the time that there had been some discussion of charging Hazard with manslaughter, but actually Erdman's widow asked them not to. There's some mention in the papers that the coroner said, well, there's no law under which we can prosecute her. (laughs) But at least she didn't get any of his money, because there is a low-key hero of Erdman's tale, and that is Ralph H. Ober, who is kind of his boss, manager, supervisor, in some position of a somewhat authority over Erdman. He was the one who offered his blood for the transfusion that they weren't able to complete. He also kept back Erdman's money, so it ended up going to his widow and not to Hazard, who would have tried to claim it, and made sure that Hazard didn't perform the autopsy. He saw, this man saw through her long before other people were able to. And yeah. he saw exactly what needed to happen. So he's, he's kind of, we have at least one hero here. We have a couple more coming. But that one did trigger some news articles, including one about how by some weird fluke, she was granted a medical license. One of 29 granted such license to practice medicine. Others included doctors who practiced such 
vaunted specialties as electrotherapeutics, hot air therapy, and mechanotherapy. Mechanotherapy? I don't know. Okay, so let's have a description of Linda during this time period. Greg Olson describes her this way. Linda Burfield Hazard had her admirers, particularly so among the young ladies of Olala. She was an elegant presence, a lady of considerable refinement, in a place where a couple yards of cotton was purchased to replace a garment that had long since given up the ghost. She usually wore the latest in dresses, a hat and gloves, and often a fur. A favorite was a fox stole that she draped over her shoulders with a dramatic flourish and fastened with an oversized gold clasp. For many years, Linda had a cocker spaniel whose reddish gold coloring matched her fox as though the dog was an accessory dyed to match. With her little dog on a leash, off the doctor would go to catch the launch for Seattle. Launch kind of like a boat ferry type deal thing. Yeah. So then next comes uh, John Ivan Flux was one who passed away under her care. He was also not American. He was British. And Lewis Ellsworth Raider. So let's talk a little bit about Raider. He was, this was a man kind of well-known to people. He'd spent some time in the state legislature. He was a populist and also sometimes went to an anarchist colony for lectures. Life was weird back then. There were anarchist colonies. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? So at 46 years old, he had dealt with illnesses for years, ever since being internally injured in an accident as a child. He went to Linda Hazard's and, under her care, was starving to death. Health department men were informed of this, and they tried to talk to him about it, but he was determined to keep going on the fast. He's like, this is helping me. And they're like, he's not in his right mind at all. So we're going to get him out of Hazard's care and into a real doctor's hands. Hazard then snuck him off to a secret location where he died soon after on May 11th, 1911, leaving behind a wife and four sons. At his death, he weighed less than 100 pounds. Wow. Of note, his sons were named Louis Jr., Wendell, Thoreau, and Gladstone. So he had a thing for men of state and letters, apparently, and philosophy. This was all going on while the sisters, whom we're going to talk about, were under treatment. And so it's kind of simultaneous to their course of treatment. And after his death, the coroner literally said, I am helpless, there are no laws against what she's doing. It appears that Raider owned Wilderness Heights, the land they wanted the sanitarium on, and bequeathed it to Hazard. Bet he did. Bet he did. Bet he was totally in his right mind and not, like, just mad with starvation or anything. Oh, you want this vegetable broth? Sign these papers first. Right? So, let's talk about the Williamson sisters. In the spring of 1911... Sisters Claire and Dorothea, also known as Dora Williamson, go to start treatment. Now, Dora is going for swollen glands and acute rheumatic pains, and Claire is going because of her dropped uterus and her inflamed ovaries, which was diagnosed by an osteopath in London. So another of Linda Hazard's ilk. 
And the treatment that she was currently employing, prescribed by an actual doctor, was soaking cotton in boric acid and glycerin, which she would then put in her vagina for three 24-hour periods a week to relieve congestion. I thought this was absolute quackery. It is quackery. No, it's not. I looked it up. The Cleveland Clinic has boric acid suppositories listed as treatment to help promote proper acid balance in the vagina, and it can help with yeast infections and such. I know. Wow. Also, that was one of the rare times when I went incognito mode while searching. I was like, I don't need my Google popping up with articles about boric acid suppositories for like the next eight years. And that's still something that is done? It's on the Cleveland Clinic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, does, it can cause some irritation. If it does, I guess you take it out. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Don't go to your actual doctor. Yeah. Go, go to a real doctor. Go to a real doctor, guys. Go to a real doctor. So talking about the Williamson sisters, they were four years apart. They were very close to each other. They also, as reported by relatives, tended to have some hypochondriac tendencies. One of their relatives actually said, being rich is the cause of all their problems. Claire and Dorothea are ill because they can afford to be ill. And isn't that the same these days? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just can't afford to be sick these days. Yep. Now, their father was British and quite well off. He served in the Imperial Army Medical Service. They were orphaned pretty young. Their father died right after Claire was born, and their mother passed when they were in their teens. And they'd also had two young sisters that they lost to illness. So there is a lot of illness and death and dying around them, which might, I think, have inspired some of that hypochondriacism. I, I would think so, honestly. When you lose that many people so young, you're probably terrified that you're going to die too. Yeah, and you think every twinge and every twitch and every ache and every pain might be another sign, and so you immediately want to get it treated and taken care of so you can live forever. But they both did grow up pretty active and hardy. They didn't suffer very much from illness, just kind of some standard childhood stuff. And they had plenty of money, like that relative said. They were millionaires even in that day. A lot of it was invested in property and stock, so not necessarily liquid. But they were still able to do the rich person path. They went to a Swiss boarding school. Then they just basically lived their life traveling a bunch. But they were pretty naive despite seeing so much of the world. And so there were prime candidates for predators and con men. This from Olson. The sisters, especially Claire, exhibited a childlike naivete and innocence that sometimes left them a target of manipulation by those with dubious intentions. Hardly a week went by when there wasn't a banker or an investment expert with phony assurances that he had a plan for their money. Encounters with those who would do them financial harm only served to draw them closer to each other. Which is another interesting dynamic, you know? Yeah, well, when everyone's out to get you, you're going to lean on the only person you can trust. So it kind of makes sense. So they just got closer and closer because they knew everybody else was a damn liar. Exactly. Really, the only person they had was their governess slash nurse, who had been with them from childhood, and still pretty much accompanied them almost everywhere, even in their 30s. When they went separate ways just for a little bit, it was kind of broken heart time, you know? <laughs> like, she was really excited. Her name was Margaret Conway. She was very excited to be going back to Australia to see some of her family, but she was also like, my girls. Yeah. They well, were her girls. They were basically her kids. Yes, yes, very much so. 
So yeah, kids are, you could say she was like an aunt who had adopted them after their parents died, but she did essentially do a large part in raising them. And because of this kind of hypochondriac tendencies and also all the different medical quackery that was going on at the time, and they were always trying different health cures. A lot of these were performed on site at institutions and in sanitariums. People who went in for this kind of thing were called back in the day faddists. That is so hard to say. Faddists. Yeah. Faddists, as in they're, they're going in for a fad. Greg Olson said it was almost a hobby, a lifestyle, their great quest. They had really learned after some negative experiences not to talk about all this stuff with family members who they would tend to stay with on their travels or at least visit with because there was some disapproval there, but they never seemed to be quite cured of their ills. Okay, so to to liken it to what's going on in society today, that would be like you going to a family reunion and saying that you took... uh, Ivermectin? Yeah, like (laughs) horse antibiotics and... uh, Horse dewormer. Sorry, horse (laughs) dewormer. But if you would go to a family event and be like, yeah, I took the dewormer, I'm fine. You're going to have people like, what the fuck is wrong with you? It is very similar to that. That is a good analog for this exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, that's what they're doing. They're hopping on fads. Hey, I saw this on Facebook, so I'm going to do it too. I'm going to go through this thing where they pop me in an oven at 500 degrees. It's like, going to clean my blood. If Yeah. And if these, if these girls were alive today, they would be selling things on Facebook and also buying everything on Facebook. Well, they didn't need to sell things. They had all the money. <laughs> so they were good there, but they would definitely be buying all the things on Facebook. Yes. 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 Or also tractor supply. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. I love summertime. Me too. I love how refreshed I feel. If you want your brain to feel like it's summertime all the time, then you need to be playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends is like a glass of lemonade on a hot day. In the pool, on a floaty, like like maybe one shaped like an alligator. And you're rocking some sexy sunglasses, wearing your favorite bikini. Christy. Oh, oh yeah. So, so Best Fiends, this amazing brain refresher of a game, is the game with never-ending fun. There are thousands of levels and so many adorable characters to collect. Best Fiends is all about solving puzzles, and we know you love solving puzzles. I love how time just flies when I'm playing it. And Jackson and I are always sharing our progress with each other every once in a while. When we're hanging out and listening to podcasts, you'll just hear one of us go, Yay, I won! Speaking of sharing progress, level check time! What level are you at, Christy Destroyer of all? (laughs) I am at level 4663. Wow! I am... uh, a little more than 50% of that. I'm at level 2,580. Well, there you go. You're catching up. Slowly, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) So download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. They were on one of their jaunts in September 1910. They had gone from Liverpool to Quebec and then Toronto, and then over to Western Canada. Jesus, I'm so jealous. Oh, That's just what they do. I know, but I like traveling. 
So uh, in September, their plan was to spend the winter in California. And then Dora was going to head to Australia, meet up with their nurse. I don't know what to call it when you're an adult. Chaperone, (laughs) Margaret Conway, while Claire was going to go and get some education. She was going to England where she had signed up for training to teach kindergarten and was slated to leave May 18th of the following spring, which would be a not-so-fortuitous date. With that plan in mind, they decided, well, we have some time in between, and we really want to try this starvation cure, so we need to do that. Let's go to Seattle, and we'll try Linda Hazard's cure. They did some correspondence with her first while they were still in Canada, and Hazard sent her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, as well as some advice. The ladies then sent back payment for the book, a buck twenty-five, which is about thirty-seven dollars today. That's a pricey little pamphlet. It's not very long either. Wow. I mean, it's long when you're trying to read it and hating your life. But uh, and she also invoiced them for some advice that she sent them. She sent them a letter and charged them five dollars for that, or one hundred and fifty dollars today. And of course, in that advice was fasting and everybody drink enemas. Enemas. Get all the bad stuff out of your butt. Exactly. As Greg Olson puts it, Dora had been employing the enema nightly and was feeling somewhat invigorated. It's all about the butt stuff. It's all about the butt stuff. So the Williamson sisters thought that they were going to be enjoying the wilderness at a country sanitarium with fresh veggies straight from the garden for their broth. But... The new sanitarium is not ready yet, so they're put up in an apartment in Seattle when they arrive in late March 1911 and given instructions for how to make their broth with canned tomatoes. Yum. Mm-hmm. The new diet is prescribed without even performing the cursoriest of exams. I mean, literally zero exams. She can tell just by looking at you that you're sick and have money. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly what it is, too. You're sick, but you have money. Exactly. Ooh, I love that cape. Would be uh, look really nice on me and uh, probably will in a couple months. So the new diet is a cup of tomato broth two times a day. And that's a cup as in a teacup, not an actual measuring cup's worth, a teacup of broth. I actually, because I'm a weird old nerd, collect teacups. And on days when I'm feeling a little blue or just need a little pick-me-up, I'll get a teacup out and drink from that because it makes me feel a little fancy. (laughs) Tea party. Tea party. We know how we like tea parties. And they do not last nearly as long as your standard coffee cup. No. You're getting up and down a lot more to refill that thing unless you bring your fancy teapot to your desk, which I've done. (laughs) (laughs) So they also get a tiny amount of OJ. Like Seriously, on some days, it's a spoonful every so often. Yeah. And the tomato broth will later be switched up with asparagus tip broth. What's happening? I can only imagine how bad that tastes. <sighs> and no seasonings whatsoever, not even a little bit of salt. As far as butter, a fingernail sliver is all, all of the butter they're allowed. So generous that they were allowed a fingernail sliver of butter. And that's in the entire pot of broth. That's yeah. not even per cup. That's nothing. That's it's, Why even bother? And also, they get to do enemas lasting hours. They're done in the knee chest position, if that tells you anything. 
They get osteopathic massages that are basically just punching them all over their bodies. You know, I want to know how to get that gig. Like, I, I have some, some rage that I would like to get out, and you're going to pay me to slap and punch you repeatedly for 30 minutes. It's called being a dominatrix, and yes, you can be paid for it. You already have the outfit. I do already have the outfit. I don't know why this isn't a thing already. Boots. I should look into that. <laughs> Perhaps I need a career change. Amber's going to go on Craigslist now. Oh, and they're supposed to go on several walks per day, which is walking out the impurities, no matter how hard it is, as they get weaker. And I have nothing against walks. Physical exercise, that's the only good part of this entire setup here. That's it. But you're also starving them and dehydrating them. Mm -hmm. And then forcing them to undergo hours worth of enemas. Yes. And then like, walk. Go for a walk. Oh, come on. That's the best you can do. Oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, they're paying for this. It's $60 per patient per month. At least it is right now. And within a few weeks of the fast starting, the sisters are constantly fainting to the point where it just becomes just a normal part of their day. Like Dora will just be like, well, Claire fainted again in the kitchen, but I just don't have the energy to go help her. I'm sure she'll wake up eventually. And then she faints. <laughs> like at this point, and, and not saying anything against these sisters because they are definitely victims, but how do you not take that as a red flag? I am losing consciousness over and over. I am too weak to stand up in the shower. How is this not a giant red flag? Also keep in mind, we're not that far out of the days, maybe still in them in fact, where swooning and fainting for women kind of just seemed a matter of course. Yeah, but now hindsight being 2020, I mean, corsets constricting your I'm lungs. I was going to say and... it was probably a matter of corset. Yeah, matter of corset. <laughs> Um, but we have all these things that at the time were just okay, but they're not okay. Yeah. And we know that now, but we should have known it then too, because listen to your own body. If your body is telling you are hungry, you should eat. If you are thirsty, you should drink. I don't care what quack tells you to not eat and drink, but don't listen to them. It's bad. Like Exactly, yes. A lot of the times when women swooned, from some sort of emotional upheaval, they probably had been crying a lot from that upheaval and then not replacing those fluids with water, maybe not eating as much because they're emotionally upset. So they're probably like, oh, I was so upset that I swooned. It's like, no, you were so dehydrated and hungry that you swooned. That was your body giving you a red flag. Yeah, yeah, that they, I wish, would have listened to. Yes, it is kind of, no, not kind of. It is incredibly frustrating reading about this, but there is also this element of, and many people say this, that Linda Burfield Hazard just kind of has this sort of power over people. She's very good at manipulating, and some people even later accuse her of brainwashing or hypnotizing. Well, and you know what? You can definitely see that, because uh, this was a very difficult read. I'm not going to lie to you guys. It was very hard to read the story of these girls and how much they believed in, in Dr. Burfield. But even on, on the times that they would kind of like reach out for help, when you'd be like, okay, well, what's going on? Never mind. Nothing. Everything is perfect. Even though they can't get out of bed, everything is perfect. Okay. 
So you have two things that might be going on here, maybe probably in concert. And I'm, again, just spitballing. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not trained in this. But you have sunk cost fallacy, which is where when you spend time and energy and effort on something, eventually you think, well, I've spent all this time and energy and effort on this. I should see it through to the end, even if it's hurting me. That's why a lot of people stay in bad relationships because they're like, well, we've been together for 25 years. I put all this time and effort in. Yeah, you're not getting the time back, so you might yeah. as well just stay miserable. It's also why a lot of like pyramid schemes, things like that work. You think, well, I've already put this money in. I'm, I've got to see it through and to, to get my reward. Maybe there's a light at the end of this dark, horrible tunnel. Exactly. And then you also have placebo effect. And I think placebo effect is kind of amazing because my mind can trick my body into thinking that what I just did made me okay, even if it's not really, but it makes me feel better. And I think that's really amazing that our minds can do that and a little scary. You know what, though? That is a, a really valid point because even though they they didn't, physically they were not good, mm-hmm. they could have been tricking themselves into saying, well, I feel better. Well, my uterus doesn't hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. Because you're distracted by all the fainting and the animus. Yes, yeah. I mean, I feel like sticking things in your butt three times a day would be very distracting. (laughs) Yes, and for hours at a time. These were sometimes, I have the number later, but gallons upon gallons of water used for these animals. It's disturbing. But you know what? That was the only water they were really getting, so maybe their body was just trying to drink it up. Right? Oh, my gosh. So there are neighbors in this, this flat where they're living, this apartment, they reported being either disturbed by the constant moaning and sounds of pain they heard coming through the walls, or if they actually visited the women, they were appalled at their weakness, how they could barely even move, how they had to be carried down the stairs and then have somebody to lean on just to go for their daily 15 walks or whatever. And it was so weak that little things, little tiny things seemed miraculous, and they couldn't even do those. So this is from Olson, and it's it's... It, I, it's sadly hilarious or hilariously sad. It's one of the two. I'm very conflicted. Why not both? Why not both? Look how much better I am, Dora said one time as she stood up to walk to greet Webb. That was one of the uh, assistants, we'll say, coming to help out with them. I can walk. I can walk. The instant she stepped forward in her joy of getting better, she keeled over and fell flatly against the hardwood floor. <sighs> That is, like, so if you picture that happening in a movie, it could easily be, like, in a comedy. Exactly, yes. But... I can walk. I can walk. Bam. Like... But in in this, it's a tragic comic at the best. (laughs) At best, yes. Yeah. But it is, really, when you look at it closely in the actual situation, it's horrifying and sad. Very sad. I wonder how many bruises they had just from falling and fainting and everything. But you know what? They were You wouldn't have noticed. They were covered in bruises anyway from the osteopathic treatment of the doctor slapping the fuck out of them. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) Dr. Hazard started getting nosy about the Williamson sisters' financial status. You know, who manages your affairs? Where do you store your valuables? Oh, you should let me take them for safekeeping. That kind of thing. Again, this is another giant red flag. Giant red flag waving just brightly on the horizon. A nurse, Nellie Sherman, who worked for Dr. Hazard, started to get concerned, so she brought a neighbor, Clara, over to look at the water 
from one of the girls' enemas. It had milky white particles in it, and they started to wonder if the girls' insides were falling apart. That's That was probably... A, there were many horrifying moments, but that was one of them. That was one of them. Well, and, and that, too, should have been a giant red flag. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we need to stop this. Something really bad is happening. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, she did. Nurse Sherman went for a second opinion. And she was terrified of Dr. Hazard finding out about this. But she was also worried about the sisters. She tried to get the women to eat. But to no avail, they would not do anything, not even take a sip of water, unless Hazard told them to. They were completely under her control at this point. It's like she has a spell on them. I'm not saying that she does. I'm just saying it's she like She could that. have. There are people who are very persuasive. And all of us like to think that we're safe from those people. But many of the people who have fallen into these traps also thought the same thing. So it's kind of scary. I don't know. If, if anybody's like, it's time for your treatment and they slap me in the face, I'm going to slap them right back because that is just my reaction to things. And I, it, it breaks my heart that these girls did not just hit her back the first time. <laughs> they were so prim and proper though. And they thought that this was doing them good. They really did. I mean, if you look at it in some ways, I've had massages done with my physical therapist and I noticed because I had literally every single physical therapist at that office during that time period, I noticed some gave more pressure, some gave less, some were better at getting knots out. Getting a knot out hurts, but then the pain goes away and you're like, oh, okay, it's, it's going to hurt and then the pain's going to go away and I'll feel better afterwards. That might have been kind of the same thought process they were having, except they were just getting punched and not having it actually anything beneficial done. But, oh, man, that one massage therapist who could really get the knots out. <sighs> <laughs> Miss that. Why won't my insurance give me more than 20 visits? So, in late April, the hazards decide to move the sisters from the flat to the sanitarium at Olala. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I think so. Okay. That's how I was saying it in my head was Olala. Yeah. It could be Olala for all we know. Olala. Oh, la, la. <laughs> and the sanitarium is not quite complete yet, so they'll be living in the Hazard's bungalow on the property where the sanitarium is being built. And it seems like the timing here is pretty obvious when you get the fact that the neighbors are starting to be concerned about the sisters. So, yes, that she wants to get them somewhere more secluded, where she can be the, in complete control and not have to worry about people interfering. Because in the past, when people interfered, what did she do? She carried somebody off and let them die elsewhere instead of having any actual medical intervention from a professional. That would have been nice. Yeah, right? At that point, they had to be carried to the transport, to the sanitarium, because they could no longer walk. Those who carried them estimated that they weighed somewhere around 70 pounds, maybe as low as 50. This blows my mind because my six-year-old weighs more than these girls weighed. Who were a full adult height? Yeah. The image in my head that I had reading this was very much the Jewish concentration camps. Mm -hmm where it was bones jutting out of skin and, and you could tell that they were 
horribly malnourished and emaciated beyond belief. Yeah. And that's the image that I had in my head. And they kept saying over and over how uh, Dora's face, the skin was pulled tight against her skull. Mm -hmm. And it was scary to people because it looked like a skull with skin. Yes. And that was horribly frightening. And I... I so badly wish, and we still have this today, where people do not intervene because they think it's not their place. Yes. But if you see somebody in trouble, you need to say something to somebody. Because it's, it's situations like this that these girls could have been saved had somebody gone to the proper authorities or or anything like that. And it still happens today that... People see kids in need of help. And I think there was actually just a story about a a kid in New York that passed away. And the owners of a bakery across the street had seen her with a black eye and knew that something was wrong, but didn't say anything because it wasn't their place. Yeah. Sometimes it's your place, guys. Yeah. Sometimes somebody has to be the one to step up. And that might just be you. Yes. Neighbor of the girls who are starving to death. Yes. Women, whatever. So at that point, as they were transporting the girls, they brought a lawyer down and they had to delay their transport because they needed the lawyer to supervise Claire adding a codicil to her will, giving 25 pounds sterling a year to the Hazard Institute of Natural Therapeutics, and also stipulating that her remains would be cremated under the direction of Linda Burfield Hazard. So another giant red flag. They're barely conscious for this, but it should be a giant red flag for anyone around them, including the lawyer. Yes. Yes. He yes. should be like, this, this person seems barely conscious and she can hardly even lift the pen. Maybe this isn't right. Yes. You would hope. You would think, yeah. But no. The very next day, after the girls have arrived at the sanitarium, I keep on saying girls and it kind of bugged me in Olson's book when he said girls, but they do have that kind of childlike innocence. Yes, because they're so naive and they're so easily taken in. And I think that's why he did it. I think that was a narrative choice and not necessarily looking down on them or anything like that. But just, so I tried to incorporate the word sisters and women, but it's still, my brain is just making the word girls come out of my mouth. I can't control my brain, guys. Samuel Hazard drew $1,005 from Claire's account, payable to Linda. That's almost $30,000 today. But there was a delay on that. So stick a pin in there because that'll come back up. They actually told the ladies that eating anything aside from the prescribed broth when they were so far into the fast would kill them. Anything at all would literally kill them, which... I can see how it's sort of like water intoxication, maybe eating too much when your stomach has shrunk so much, if you ate too much. But if you just ate a little bit at a time, no. It would just be, you know, your body saying, finally, some fucking nutrients. <laughs> yeah, but you ha- you'd have to, to pace yourself on it. Because Absolutely. Like, like I had a, a surgery on my, my stomach and esophagus a few years ago. And so I had to fast before it. And then I had to fast for a little bit after, and then it was like fluids and protein shakes, and I had to work my way back up 
two solid foods. That's exactly what I had to do after my gallbladder surgery. Yeah. I, because I hadn't eaten hardly anything for six months because even half a pack of fruit snacks made me bloat up <laughs> incredibly uncomfortably and belch all the time. So after my gallbladder surgery, I mean, I lost a lot of weight and I was, I, I started on like carnation instant breakfast. That was half of my nutrients for the day <laughs> for a long while. But yeah, so they should have worked their way up and drank more broth and drank more water and then maybe tried to, I don't know, go eat some fucking tree bark or something because they needed some sort of nutrients. Oh my God. Or start doing that sooner than a month after they started the fast. Fasting for 30 days. That's and insane. then you're like, well, I guess I've got another 30 ahead of me or whatever. It's, it's horrifying. They also kept the sisters separate from each other with Dora being told that Claire was too weak and Claire being told that Dora was too demented. Mm-hmm. You can see the manipulation, triangulation, you know. Well, because if you leave them together, they're going to talk and they might be like, I think this is a bad idea. Yeah, we should leave. Mm-hmm. So to prevent that, I think she knew it was coming because they were both getting so sick Mm -hmm. that she was like, nope, she's insane. Oh, she's passed out. Sorry, guys. Different rooms. Exactly. Yes. Dr. Hazard was an incredibly manipulative person. Claire did manage to reach out somehow to their lifelong nurse, Margaret Conway. And she, as I mentioned earlier, was visiting family in Australia and they were supposed to meet up later on. So she got a cablegram that said a particular steamer heading to North America in May, that was all, it mentioned the steamer, mentioned the date, and it mentioned first class. And Margaret just sat there and thought, hmm, it's really weird that she would mention first class. Claire's not one to flex. She just assumed she's going to be in first class. Why would she think she had to specify? Because Margaret originally thought that Claire was telling her, I'll be on the steamer. She goes to look at the steamer, and she th- sees that it's going to America. And she realizes that Claire actually was asking her to come to them. And ama- she does everything she can, and she manages to get on that boat, even though she's definitely not in first class. But you know what? That was that was an amazingly good pickup. And I think Claire probably knew that she couldn't say anything in the cablegram, else it wouldn't get sent. Yeah, she knew that there was nobody around her that she could trust, and she had to get that cablegram out somehow. Oh, she did. It's kind of uncertain, I think, but she didn't know whose eyes would fall upon it, so she had to kind of speak in a code. And it's incredibly smart of her to think, well, if I just flash first class around, Margaret will pick up on that. Yeah, she's going to know that she needs to be Mm -hmm. on this boat. And smart of Margaret to pick up on it, too. She does manage to get the cablegram out, but they're so weak, they can't escape. But they have, like you said, they've mentioned that this is not working out for them. This is this was not a good idea. And Dora would later recall that when Hazard brought her in to see Claire, when Claire was really fading away, Claire was trying to tell Dora something, but she couldn't speak louder than a whisper because she was so weak. And Hazard stayed in the room and just kept on talking and talking super loud, wouldn't leave the room, wouldn't even shut up so that Dora could hear what had ended up being her sister's last words. Another manipulation, another stratagem on her part to cut off communication between these sisters, even to the very last. Yeah. So then Hazard decided it was time for another massage treatment. We have this from Starvation Heights. Would you like a treatment, Claire? 
Dr. Hazard didn't wait for a response before moving to the bedside and slipping between the two sisters. She hammered her palm hard against Claire's stomach. Claire let out a pathetic little cry. The noise sounded like one coming from a small child, not a grown woman. Her eyes rolled in their sockets before lining up in a dazed and bewildered fashion. She went unconscious. Dora got to give her a little kiss, and then Claire was dead. At least according to Dr. Hazard. Dr. Hazard's like, well, Claire's dead. Out you go, Dora. Bye. (laughs) It's been fun. It's been super awesome. This was a nice visit. In the aftermath, (sighs) Linda Hazard was concerned trolling before it was a thing. She starts hinting to Dora, oh, I'm so worried that you might commit suicide. I had a patient who tried to do it once. Oh, Dora, you're not thinking of suicide, are you? Suicide, 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 Dora. You could have jumped out this window, Dora. Right? Look at this. Look at this rope. I bet this would make a nice noose, and I'll even tie it up for you, Dora. Don't think about it, though. Don't. I'm just going to hang this right here over the rafter. Don't you think about it. Don't. Don't think about it. We don't want you to think about it, but here's this gun all loaded up <laughs> and, a, and a vial of poison and a knife. These are just for decoration. Just for decoration. There's a cliff over there if you want to go for a stroll. Yeah. <laughs> It's exactly that. And Dora, much to her credit, is not having it. She's starting to really see things here. And she says, It does not seem to me the right thing under the circumstance. Me lying here helpless and my sister just gone. To mention the subject of suicide to me. Right? Yes, exactly. There you go. Thank you, Dora, for finding your balls. Yes, but then Hazard doubles down. And I wanted to go back in time and give her an osteopathic massage. I would love to give her an (sighs) osteopathic massage. Dear, you are insane. An imbecile. You will likely be an imbecile for life. It was Claire's wish that you should remain at Olala and live here. We shall care for you always. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. Margaret sailed all the way to Vancouver, picking up a letter from Claire at one stop, only to arrive in Vancouver and be met by Sam Hazard. And the news that Claire is dead at age 33. She had died on May 19th, which was the day after she'd originally planned to sail to England to train to be a kindergarten teacher. Linda Hazard, when Margaret meets up with her, gives this whole song and dance about how desperately ill Claire was when she came to the sanitarium. Purple in the face was how sick she was. I don't... Nope. That's not a... Bullshit. Yeah, that's not a thing. And gives details of the autopsy that, of course, she performed herself. Mm-hmm. And she does bring out a bag that she says has the organs in them and describes them to Margaret. And then the sister's uncle comes and she actually lays out the organs for him. Because that's what you want to see when yeah. a close relative has died. You want to see their organs. Just laid out on a table. But you know what? That made for an interesting little uh, oopsie, I think, on her part in that supposed letter to the uncle from Claire, where Claire was like, my organs were very small and dry. Well, if she's alive, you don't know that. Exactly. Yes. It's very strange that somebody would talk about their organs and how they know that their organs are small and dry, and also they're dry because you need to drink some damn water if they are. Uh, So... Linda Hazard claims that the cause of death is cirrhosis of the liver, and that had come about due to being given drugs as a child, which is interesting when you flash back 
to Hazard's childhood and how she claimed that the drugs she was given as a child made her need enemas for life and directed her towards natural medicine. Natural medicine. Mm-hmm. She and, just liked butt stuff. And also she said that this, these drugs had shrank all her organs but her heart and her lungs. The weird thing is that both Margaret and Claire's uncle don't think the embalmed corpse that they see looks like Claire. Like, at all. Yeah, there's a lot of differences. And somehow, Claire, who is deceased, her body is less emaciated than that of her still-living sister. This starts up a rumor that there had maybe been a body switch because Hazard didn't want them to see just how incredibly emaciated Claire was. And I, I think that's probably accurate, but I'm also curious as to who the other body belonged to. That's a big, big question. There was a s- sort of symbiotic relationship, I think, between the hazards and a funeral parlor. And something might have happened there. Maybe some money changed hands? We don't know. It's... Well, they had plenty of it after stealing all of Claire's. Exactly, Yes. Dora is, as we said, still alive. She's living in a cabin on the sanitarium property. She's emaciated beyond belief. She's the size of a child. And Margaret is like, I am going to stay here and take care of her and figure out a way to get her the hell out of here. And Dora is begging Margaret to take her away. But then the next, in the next instant, she seems dedicated to the fasting. So her brain is, is not quite able to settle on one side or the other. But I don't think that was her brain. So I think that when she first saw her, basically her mother figure, Mm -hmm. she grabbed a hold of her and was like, oh my God, get me out of here. And then Dr. Bitchface was like, no, you need to stay the course. If you don't stay the course, you're going to end up like your sister. Yeah, it was probably her survival instincts kicked in when she saw her mother figure, Margaret, and then when, you know, but somehow Dr. Hazard had this way of shutting her survival instincts down with that whole, again, the sunk cost fallacy that she she manages to pummel into them, much like her fists. And so, of course, you also have Hazard claiming that Dora is so demented that she just can't even talk business matters with anyone. Of course. And uh, anyhow... Dr. Hazard has that all under control, so there's no need to talk about it because, you know, Dora is so mentally incompetent she's not even allowed to write letters. And this is, of course, due to the menopause that (laughs) Dr. Hazard is now insisting Dora is going through, and I believe she's 37 at the point, and that's not to say that premature menopause, I think it's called, is not a thing, but I don't think that's what was going on. I think it might be the starvation and the manipulation. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. She's so weak that she's not allowed to go to her sister's funeral services in Seattle. Well, I also kind of suspect that had she gone, she could have been like, that's not my sister. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. I think that they were... A, she is very weak. So, yeah, they have a valid excuse. But at the same time, I'm sure they were very happy to exercise that valid excuse. Yes, yes, absolutely. So even in June, she's been doing this for a month and a half now, if at least. Dora's only allowed two servings of broth, one serving of mashed vegetables, and water. 
And she's so weak that she can't even manage to chew and swallow the mashed vegetables. That's the extent of the weakness we're talking about here. Margaret does manage to slowly take over Dora's care, but she has to kind of walk the line with Hazard, and Hazard's still giving the orders. But very slowly, Margaret manages to get just a little bit more sustenance in her. She puts, gives her a little fruit juice in the morning, sneaks a little bit of flour or something into the broth. Just every little bit counts here. And, you know, like you said, pace herself anyhow. So with, with that little sustenance is going to go a long way in a body that is so desperate for it. Linda Hazard does a very nice thing. She wears Claire's clothing after her death. Mm-hmm. That is ghoulish to the extreme. Yes, I agree. I was upset by that. I don't know. It, that, that really bothered me. And she had, of course, stolen it all from Claire's trunk. Well, because, I mean, Claire's not wearing it anymore, and it looks so good on her. Right? Oh. And Margaret also finds out that Dora had signed over power of attorney to Samuel Hazard, which Dora didn't think she had been doing. She thought she had just been giving him permission to send some money of hers to a family member. Sort of he would just be the middleman to go to the bank and do that. But really, he had just withdrawn the money for himself. And this is the, the generosity of these sisters towards their family members. That would be $583 that she was going to send to a family member, uh, or $17,000 today. Wow. And that's also $17,000 today that Sam Hazard stole. Speaking of money... Remember the $1,005 that Samuel Hazard uh, tried to get out of the bank in Claire's name? He's still bugging the bank for that money a week after her death, which is pretty bad. And, but this was what they did. They had done it several times. They lure in the international clients, and then they either have them sign over a bunch of their estate to the Hazards, or even become administrators of the estate and then bill it exorbitantly for the care of the patient after their death. So Hazard is insistent. Dora is going to stay here. She must stay here. She's mentally incompetent. She uses fear. She uses manipulation. She actually lies to Margaret about the mailbox at the property needing to be locked. She says, oh, well, the postman told me we had to all lock our mailboxes up for security. And after a little while of this, Margaret happens to be down by the mailbox when the mailman comes. And she says, so what, what's with the locks that we all have to put on our mailboxes? And the postman says, what locks? Nobody has to put locks on the mailboxes. That's not a thing. And she manages to get some of her mail, which had been being held back. And well, and they get ripped a new one for getting her own letters. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was beyond the pale, according to Dr. Hazard, for her to be actually getting her own letters. And poor Margaret has to tread this line so carefully between maintaining her own freedom so that she doesn't end up another prisoner and also getting Dora out that she can't upset Hazard. And anytime you go against the very strict orders of Dr. Hazard or try to subvert one of her attempts at manipulation, she rains hell down on you. So it's very, it, I, I have such admiration for Margaret Conway for how she handled this situation. And because it would be, I would be constantly paranoid and start thinking maybe I'm losing my mind. 
maybe it's just me. Maybe everybody else thinks that the hazard is totally fine. Maybe this, maybe this fasting thing works. I don't know. Maybe I should stop eating. <laughs> See, I don't know. Like, I, I'm a going guns blazing kind of person, I guess. Because I would have, like, after Claire died, I would have brought the cops with me. I would have scooped 50-pound Dora up and walked the fuck out while everyone was arresting the doctor. Also, like, keep in mind, though, these are all not Americans. You have Margaret Conway, who's Australian. You have the girls who are British. The cops might be less likely to get involved. Don't want to cause any international incidents of any kind. Oh, you know, you know what, though? That's an international incident in itself. It is, yeah. Because they're being held captive by an American in America. But obviously, their visas are expired. Do they even have... Is, I don't know. I, I didn't even know if visas were a thing. But you also have to remember... You would go in guns blazing now, but who would you be if you had been raised in the late 1800s, early 1900s? You would be raised, especially as a woman, to be very accommodating, to be very polite. Oh, no, I was already raised that way. Obviously, it didn't stick. <laughs> it didn't stick. But probably back then, you would have been more along the lines of what society did. I think what you would have done is you would have started raising hell after the police probably refused to help you. They would be useless anyhow. You would have started raising hell with the government and gotten the government involved because that's, and then the things would have, wheels would have started turning once. Uh, yeah, but you know what? Like, I, I hate, I hate the government. So I might have probably <laughs> just burn it down. Well, yes, you do like, you do like burning things. Yeah, I probably just would have burned it down. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually like my next point. Another thing that Hazard uses is their relative ignorance about the American legal system. They're in a country where they don't know the ins and the outs of the legal system. They don't know what is and isn't possible. And that's one of the reasons that she likes foreign patients. That, and they're also away from their support network. She can isolate them much more easily and quickly. Yeah. Get them under her power. And there, there are other patients there. They come to Margaret and they beg, beg her to help them escape. And they call themselves prisoners. And they, in a, in a real sense, were. So Margaret, meanwhile, is absolutely horrified by everything around her. She says, It was all a nightmare, a period of horror, of starving, emaciated bodies drawing themselves about, an inferno of fear and horror. So Dora and Margaret summon Dora's uncle to come and help them. She's like, I need backup here. <laughs> Just me trying to get Dora out is not really working. So I need somebody who's, who knows a little bit more about the legal system here. So he comes down, and when they attempt to leave, they discover that apparently Dr. Hazard has somehow managed to get guardianship over Dora. And Hazard says, well, the county authorities labeled Dora incompetent, so... Here we are, I have guardianship over her, and it's all nice and neat and legal, except it really isn't, and it's not true. But also, who does she think she is? Jamie Spears? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I was going to get that in there. <laughs> Free Britney. Yeah, Free Britney. The hazards then demand, before anybody can leave, $2,000 for their treatment of both women. That's nearly $60,000 today. So remember I said the original charge was going to be $60 per patient per month. And it's only been, this is late July, it's, it's only been four months-ish. April, May, June, July, yes. And 
poor Claire didn't even last two months. So that number has been significantly inflated now, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like a ransom. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And they're like, if we just pay her this money, maybe we can finally leave. And they do manage to get Dora out, and she very slowly starts recovering. It's a, it's a long road to recovery for her, but she does get on it. And on August 5th, 1911, Linda Burfield Hazard is arrested for murder. And boy, does she have a lot to say. She tells the media that her son might do something to get her out, very much in that manner of, oh, I hope my son doesn't do anything violent because he's so upset that mommy got arrested. Oh, I hope you don't commit suicide. Exactly, yes. And says that this is great because being arrested is going to be wonderful publicity for her starvation treatment. (laughs) No publicity is bad publicity, I guess. She very much had that feeling, or it was bravado, false bravado. The bond was set at $10,000, which is nearly $3,000 today, and they did that thing where they arrested her on the weekend so that she wouldn't be able to get out for at least a couple days because, you know, nobody works on the weekends, and it's hard to get that hold of that money on a Saturday afternoon. And she's not really in jail. Lady prisoners at this point in time in Seattle were taken to a house where a county court officer watched over them. That's not jail. That's not jail. That's that's just a, a vacation, <laughs> being a house guest. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And she does eventually secure bail, so she's out and about to do more harm. The British consul finds out about this whole fiasco, and he starts working on Dora's behalf. He is... He's the one that they needed. <laughs> he's the person that they needed, in addition to Dora's uncle and Margaret... He is going to town every avenue he can pursue, every bit of information he can dig up. He kind of becomes an investigator himself in a way, trying to find out more information, anything they can do to prosecute the crap out of this woman. And this is being prosecuted in Kitsap County, where Olala is, not King County, where Seattle is, because Olala, Kitsap County, is where Claire died. And... He actually is working to get the Crown to pay for at least some of the prosecution's costs. Because that's one of their issues is this trial will be all of our trial budget for the whole year. (laughs) We don't have the money to put on a trial like this in our little tiny county. There's some, it's kind of, I couldn't quite follow that thread as to whether or not that came to fruition. I think he might have gotten a little bit to reimburse him for uh, some expenses, Uh, I think there was a big concern that the British crown paying money for the prosecution of an American, that might be an international incident in itself, or at least cause some tension. They are, there's, in the lead up to the trial, there are hearings uh, regarding the money that she took from the sisters. In one hearing, she's ordered to return $973 to Dora, and that was out of the fees. The court found that these fees were just too outrageous And that's way too much to pay for a couple teacups of tomato broth twice a day and being punched a bunch. Yeah. Enemad. Enemad. And enemad. I verbed enema. It's a thing now. (laughs) Yes, it is. Hazard closes the sanitarium for a bit in advance of the trial to deal with that. And she's certain she'll return after she's acquitted because she's certain she'll be acquitted. 
I feel like she wore one of Claire's dresses to the, the hearings. Oh, my God. That would be such a, like, psychological move on her part if she did. I, it, didn't, it didn't show up in the book if she did. It didn't show up, but I would almost put money on it. She's just that brazen. Yeah. She's just that brazen. I have spent a lifetime in my work, and do you think I'm going to give it up now? No, never. I'm going right back to it harder than ever. <laughs> So the trial starts in January. Dr. Hazard is not pleased that she ends up with an all-male jury. And you might say, well, what was the other option? Because that's what we see most of the time. But at that place in time, women could legally be jurors. But they got prospective juror names from the voting rolls. And for some reason, there were no women on the voting rolls in 1911 and 12. I wonder why. They had a really hard time actually getting enough jurors. The 12th juror chair was very hard to fill. They called it the hoodoo chair because it just seemed as soon as somebody sat down to be, you know, grilled about being the 12th juror, something bad would happen to them or they would have some reason, you know, that would pop up that (laughs) wouldn't make them work on the jury. I feel like it was just Sam out back with a baseball bat. Like, you're not going to testify against my wife. (laughs) And now, who does he think he is? Jeff (laughs) Galuli? He could be. That could be an alias. (laughs) He had lots of names. Pulled that one out of the archives. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think it was Jeff Galuli that did the... I just think he set it up on on Nancy Kerrigan. I just remember his name because he was Tanya Harding's (laughs) ex-husband. Whoever actually did it, I don't remember their name, which is the funny part. (laughs) That's because everyone just blames Sonia Harding. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's also true. That's also true. More than a hundred witnesses were called. And there is, this is one of the, on the prosecution side, there's testimony galore from nurses and servants from the sanitarium talking about the treatment of the Williamson sisters, how they cried out in pain. The massage treatments were so loud they could be heard from downstairs. And they were asked to to talk about the, which must have been really uncomfortable to talk about, but not as uncomfortable as enduring, the unending enemas. At one point, uh, one of the witnesses is asked how much water was used. And she says 12, he or she says 12 gallons. And a woman in the gallery nearly fainted. Swooned, if you will. Nearly swooned. She probably just needed some water. Yeah. (laughs) And not in her butthole. Yes. And they also had something we haven't really touched on, scalding baths. Baths where you could see clouds of steam rising and like the nurses couldn't even touch the water and yet they were required to lower these women into these scalding baths. And have you ever been in like a too hot bath or a hot tub or anything like that when uh, you're a little hungry or dehydrated, something that makes your blood pressure dip a little bit? You know what that does? Makes you pass out. Makes you pass out. Yep. <laughs> well, they it. don't fight as hard when they're unconscious. Exactly. There was also testimony as to how the sisters were refused access to their belongings and were once, uh, at Hazard's direction, misled about the source of the tomatoes in their broth. They were to be told that these were fresh tomatoes in the broth when it was, again, still canned. Yeah, everything was canned. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were not allowed to buy groceries. Yeah. So all they had were these these canned tomatoes, but they were the very freshest from the farm. 
yeah, patients at the sanitarium would try to bribe like local kids to go down and get them food at the store. It's like kind of like fat camp, how you always had the one kid that would sneak in the candy bars and then that kid made a lot of money. I feel like the, the area kids would be sneaking in loaves of bread. Yes. And could have made a fortune. And honestly, I would not fault them if they did. I would actually give them high fives yes. and probably money. Yeah. Buy them more bread. You got it, kid. <laughs> yeah. Then there's the story that comes out in court of how one of Claire's fellow countrymen had died not long before Claire did at the sanitarium. And Linda Hazard had been talking about how she dismembered his body and she needed a bigger kettle because her kettle wasn't big enough to hold all the remains of the poor deer. <sighs> so she did her own cremations is what you're saying. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. There's also testimony about all the financial misdeeds that we talked about. And yet somehow Linda Burfield Hazard cannot seem to take this seriously. She even says on the first day, I really feel almost as if I were at a play. This is hysterical. She'll actually like laugh at things. And then Dora testifies. She jokes on the way to uh, the court that she's going to a doctor's appointment, which is Dora. Dora. Now she has to tell all of it, including about the animas, which for a delicate, appropriate, upper-class woman of this time period, hell, I wouldn't want to go on the stand and talk about enemas. No, I don't think anyone <laughs> would want to. Yeah, it's, we're 110 years later. I don't want to do this. So I give her a lot of credit for getting through that. And it was several days of, that she had to be on the stand as well. And of course, the financial matters, how Hazard had convinced her that she was insane, how she only found out later that men were employed to help bathe her while she was unconscious. Oh. She thought they were just there to carry up the water and the and the wood for the fire and stuff like that. But no, they, she was later told, she was like, oh yeah, that guy helped with your bath. There's a lot of potential for abuse that could have happened and she would have just been too unconscious to know about it. Yeah. And not not to be gross or anything, but with, with all the animas and stuff, I mean, they could have sodomized her while she was out and she never would have realized. That is also true, yes. And not only that, but... Somebody whose body is at, at peak physical health will still have a time mentally accepting having been abused in that manner. Yeah. When you're, all your resources are going just to keeping your body barely alive, you don't have the mental resources to deal with trauma. Yeah. So I'm, we're, not, we're not saying by any means that this happened. We're just saying that the potential certainly exists. The potential exists. More and than in any other medical situation I can think of. Yeah, and she didn't know until well after the fact that there were men giving her baths when she was completely nude and incapacitated. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really scary to think about. During her testimony, remember all male jury, two jurors were seen dabbing at their eyes with their handkerchiefs, and a third juror was kind of like patting his pocket and lip trembling, like, where's my damn handkerchief? Why today of all days? <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, because this is all, this is all through the papers. This is known internationally. Dora starts getting mail, marriage proposals from strangers, because people were just so damn weird. They were so weird. They would just propose to people they saw in newspaper articles that they'd never met. 
I'll protect you, sweetheart. Marry me. Yes. The British vice consul who is leading the charge has his home broken into eight days into the trial. He had Claire's trunk stored there and some of Dora's belongings and stuff. Someone had rifled through Claire's trunk. Not a damn thing else in the house was bothered. Almost like they had a target. And they were never really sure what... They didn't have an exact inventory of the trunk, so they were never entirely sure what was missing or if anything was missing, but it was just obvious that somebody had gone through it. That's bizarre. Well, there was a lot of also attempted intimidation of witnesses for the prosecution, attempted bribery of witnesses for the prosecution. There was a lot of that going on from the hazard side of things. One of the neighbors from the Seattle apartment testifies, and this is the exchange between her and the prosecutor. Mrs. Fields, did you ever see anyone die of starvation? No, sir, not of starvation. I have seen them waste away from not eating. (sighs) If it had been a physical book, I definitely would have thrown it across the room right then. I definitely would have thrown it across the room at that moment, but I I had it on the Kindle app on my laptop, and I I should have just grabbed a random book, but no no book deserves this. (laughs) No other book deserves it. Well, this book is fine. It's just some of the contents that people said back then make me angry. So it's not a fault of the author. He's just transcribing what was said. But you know what? Like, so I've, I've worked in the court system, and you'd be shocked at how many dumb question-answer sessions there are in court. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Because it's like, oh, okay, your son's 18. How old was he last year? It's like, how old do you think he was? <laughs> Like, th- like, these are things that happen in court. You you ask stupid questions, you get stupid answers. Um, that, that person might have thought that they were being quite witty and saying, well, technically, she hadn't yet died of starvation. I'm not dead yet. Like, <laughs> so perhaps they thought that they were just being witty. I, I didn't see anyone die with my own eyes in the process of dying, but I saw the emaciated bodies before and after they died. Yeah, like, I think maybe that was what they were going for. Yeah. Maybe. It, it, in the old Tiny Crimey, I brought out a few uh, newspaper articles from, from the old newspapers, and one of them had a man on, on court. It was kind of a joke article, I'm pretty sure. But now, maybe I, maybe it could be true. Uh, he was asked if the deceased was a stranger to him, and he said, well, he's a partial stranger. And the coroner's like, well, it's either one or the other. He's either a stranger or he's not a stranger. And uh, he says, well, he was a partial stranger. He only had one leg. And so <laughs> that's kind of similar to what we're seeing here. I hadn't made that connection until just now. <laughs> and, of course, this Mrs. Fields from the Seattle apartment who has seeing people waste away from not eating. Those people are the previous patients who had stayed there. Yep. So, servant testifies as to Claire's appearance uh, towards the end of her life. And this is from Olson's book, but it's the the servant's words. It's pretty rough, just giving you a Trigger warning. Yeah. Miss Claire was terribly thin, and she had a sore on the lower part of her spine. It was ulcerated and red and quite large, about the size of a dollar or larger. The skin was drawn over her cheekbones so as to give her almost a skeleton-like appearance. Her upper lip did not come over her teeth, and she had some difficulty in talking because she could not close her lips. 
Her body had mottled spots on it. You could feel her backbone by putting your hand on her stomach. That was another moment where I was just so horrified that I had to take a little break. Yeah. It's difficult to read that and to think of just how much suffering and weakness was gone through before the end came. Also, that servant testifies that she saw the body soon after Claire's death. Somebody else in the house, another servant or a nurse or something, was like, hey, you want to go see the body? And, you know, people being kind of ghoulish in their way. You know you would, too. If somebody's like, hey, I got a body, you want to see it? I would definitely go. Like, I would go. You're telling me you wouldn't go? I mean, I've been to funerals and seen... That's just, Okay, so funerals are the most arcane shit I've ever seen in my life. Hey, we filled a body with some fluid and stuff. You want to go look at it? Look, I put makeup on it. Aren't they pretty? <laughs> like, funerals are so friggin' bizarre to me. But it's the same thing. But you can go see the body. And, like, people do that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd have to, in the moment, I would make my decision. But if I knew it was going to be something that might cause me trauma, like an incredibly emaciated person who'd suffered... Just for my own mental protection and not even out of any sense of decorum. Just out of pure selfishness, I would say, no, thanks, I'm good. See, I would go because I'm, I'm just like, I w- yeah, I, I want to see, like, I, I, for science. Like, I would be that person. I don't know. Well, I've also spent a lot of my time in therapy confronting my difficulty with accepting the idea of death. So yeah. <laughs> that, that was a servant who probably had some sort of interest in, in medicine and I, I think you have to have kind of like a different mind to have an interest in medicine because you want to see the gross stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to see your organs. Even if, like, <laughs> uh, thanks? But, like, if I went to a doctor's <laughs> office and they're like, these are her organs, I'd be like, that's awesome. And I would pick them up and check them out. Like, that is the type of person I am. And if if it's somebody interested in medicine, Christy is protecting herself right now. <laughs> I am covering my abdomen so that Amber can't get to my organs. I, I'm protecting the liver because I need it real bad. And the kidneys. <laughs> I'm not going to steal them while they're in you. But if they happen to be out of you, I'm going to touch it. I just have this horrifying imagery of you playing with my intestines. Look, it's jump rope. It's a lasso. <laughs> Yeehaw. Oh, my God. I just pictured hanging an intestine from the rafter and tying it in a noose. Be like, don't kill yourself with your sister's intestine now. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> that went in a hole. But see, That like, was a callback. <laughs> so some brains are just wired differently, and obviously I should probably go to some sort of asylum. <laughs> and you are sane enough to be like, no, don't want to see the body. Thanks. <laughs> I've just had enough therapy. <laughs> Maybe I should put you in touch with my therapist. I like your therapist. (laughs) So, oh dear. I think we needed that moment of levity because it is, it is grim stuff here. It is. It is grim. (laughs) Because in in a distant writerly way, I can appreciate Olson's wording and phrasing when he says that the testimony of, of the servant after she saw the body Her description made it seem like it was, quote, a skeleton that had been dipped in some kind of paint. And that, I felt, was incredibly evocative imagery. Sometimes I wish it wasn't so evocative. (laughs) Sometimes I could just go with vague and doesn't bring to mind any images whatsoever. But good on on Olsen for Good on Olsen. Yeah. When the servant is asked, this is very telling, very telling. The servant is asked why she left Dr. Hazard's employ. And she says, well, 
I was sick. And Dr. Hazard was angry that I was sick. She can cure everything with her fast, you know. Oh, God. But a servant doesn't have the money to pay for two teacups of broth and a spoonful of orange juice and a bunch of punching and enemas. So that was the end of that business relationship. Good luck. I'm I'm very happy for her because that is probably what led to her survival. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I'm I'm certainly not saying I wish that she had gotten some help from Dr. Hazard. That's not help. (laughs) Sometimes, guys, being poor pays off. Yeah, every (laughs) once in a while, being poor pays off. It says everything right there. She's not interested in helping or healing, even though she doesn't actually do either, unless she can kill them for their money. So, uh, yeah, that, that is the lesson today is to be broke and you will be uh, safe from some situations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You'll, be, you'll at least be safe from the predators, who, financial predators. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really wacky, weird aspect of this whole case. A lot of the residents of the county where the sanitarium was were either uh, illiterate because it was a very uh, financially poor county or they were uh, didn't speak a lot of English. So there wasn't a lot of reading of the papers. The whole entire world knew what was going on and the people closest to the sanitarium had not the faintest clue. They just knew that Linda Hazard had to go on to court for something. And so they were like, well, she probably doesn't have time to cook, so we should we should bring her some food, right? Be the neighborly thing. There's oh, like the irony. Seven-layer dip irony. <laughs> I love it. They probably brought her seven-layer dip. I hope they did. <laughs> and also, like, another layer being that she didn't cook for herself. Didn't matter. She had servants for that. So. They have a handwriting expert come in to testify about some entries in Claire's uh, diary in which she bequeathed her diamonds to Linda Hazard. And the handwriting expert says, mm, that's a forgery. Duh. Yes. A doctor testifies that as Claire got weaker and weaker, she may have had more and more hope that this cure would work. So it's sort of a- another kind of mental barrier to getting out of there and seeing the danger that she thinks, well, I just have to put all of my trust and faith in her, and as I get weaker and weaker, that just means it's working. It's getting all the evil out. Yes, yes, it's flushing all the toxins, all the early toxins. (sighs) And also this doctor states that the diet that the ladies were on was less than one-fifth the amount of food necessary just for bare survival. Yeah. Just for bare survival. So the defense's angle is that Claire Williamson had always been ill, and it was some other condition that caused her death, peritonitis, cirrhosis. They say, we believe the evidence will show at that time Claire began to fail rapidly, and she was treated all over the country with all the schools and doctors she believed in for that disease. And just prior to the time she came to Seattle, she was beginning to go down more rapidly, and at that time, she came to see Dr. Hazard as a last resort. And the defense's angle was just that the issue wasn't that the women were not getting enough food from Dr. Hazard, but just that they couldn't eat it and absorb it. Uh-huh. Their bodies had just were already so disintegrated by the time they got there. 
One of the defense's witnesses was actually a man whose wife had died under Dr. Hazard's care just four years prior. Even after seeing someone die from this, they believe her that there was some pre-existing condition that caused them to die and it didn't have anything to do with the fasting and they still back her damn cure. Oh my God. It's very frustrating. And then Nellie Sherman, the nurse who had actually sought a second opinion about the girls and seemed to care about them, she kind of does a reverse course and she testifies for the defense. She says, no, they didn't just drink tomato water. There was bread, there were eggs, rice, cornflakes, fresh chickens. And she says, well, the sisters were just picky. They were just too picky. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. They were too picky because they were not offered any of the other things. Yeah. <laughs> they're so picky that they don't eat the things that they're not offered. So, like, I, I want everyone to understand that, that these girls were so weak that even during their enemas... They were put in basically like a hammock because they were too weak to withstand the enemas that they were ordered to do several times a day. They would pass out during the enemas because A, they were so weak and B, the enemas were so long. They were literally put in a hammock while everything was like ripped out of them. Yes. And they're like, oh no, there was chicken. Except Dr. Hazard, Dr. Hazard, was uh, very opposed to any sort of meat eating. Like, that was not a thing. And they were vegetarians. Yeah, yeah. Even if they wouldn't have even eaten the chicken had it been offered to them. Not that it was. It wasn't offered, but at that point, they might have eaten it if the doctor was like, yeah, it's cool if you eat this. And definitely relatives that they stayed with just prior to going to the sanitarium were offering them all kinds of food, and they ate it because they felt like they had to, even though they were like, well, we should be fasting. We should be fasting in preparation for going to fast some more. And so, yeah, picky, I call bullshit. They would eat these things even though they felt they weren't supposed to because they were being polite. So you can't tell me that under a nurse's care, they wouldn't be the exact same way. Oh, and these bitches love bread. They would have eaten that bread all day. Yes. Bitches love bread. In amongst the different moments of, you know, witness tampering, there was a moment during court that Dr. Hazard was signaling to witnesses during their testimony to the extent that the judge said he'd have her barred from the courtroom if it was possible. But it's not because you have a right to face your accuser. So you have a right to be there no matter what. But she would be like holding up her fingers to her face to kind of you know, indicate which answer they should give. It was four days until she puts four fingers against her, her cheek. It's like cheating at cards, but in court. Really? And shockingly, for somebody who loves to talk so much, Linda Hazard does not testify in her own defense. I was surprised by that, but I think her lawyers managed to get her to back down from that idea because they knew that it would go very poorly. Oh my God. No, I, I absolutely agree because I feel like Linda's like, let me in, put me in coach. And the lawyer's <laughs> like, you're going to put yourself behind bars. Yes. Don't open your mouth. You're already sitting over here giggling. They think you're an asshole. <laughs> How about we know? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the judge, when giving instructions to the jury before they go to deliberate, says that it should be considered a crime if Claire didn't get food at the facility, whether or not it was Dr. Hazard personally withholding it. But it was not a crime if Claire herself refused food. 
So the jury goes, they deliberate for 20 hours, which is a shocking amount of time. That is a shocking amount of time for back then. Yes, back then it was a cigar and you were done. We've had a cigar, let's go hang him. And just as everyone gathers for the verdict in the courtroom, the power goes out. Which is hilarious because Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard is afraid of the dark. Oh, good. Yes. So at least we have that. I, I, I think it was Claire's spirit just trying to get one last dig in. I think so, too. In order to read and affirm the verdict, they had to just keep on striking up matches one after the other. That's amazing. And they each, jerk says, guilty of manslaughter. Now, at first, they had been all over the place. They had four for first-degree murder, four for second-degree murder, one for manslaughter, and two who just wouldn't say anything about what they thought. So in the end, they compromised with the manslaughter, which it feels like second-degree would be more of a compromise. I I agree. I agree. I mean, it's it's the middle road between manslaughter and first, so that just seems like the compromise, but that's not what they did. One headline called her the fast fiend. I love the headline writers in those days. She was sentenced to two to 20 years of hard labor, and within a few months, thankfully, her medical license was revoked for the protection of the public. Hooray. She's still out on bond, pending appeal, it seems, and patients are still coming. Oh, my God. And dying. Five more die in 1912 and 1913 under her care or that of those who she's taught the fasting method. That's insane. Like, yeah. what is wrong with people? Yep. This includes a mother who had been fasting herself and feeding her baby water with a little fruit juice, just, just enough to color the water, essentially, which, what do babies care what color the water is? <laughs> Come on. And you should never, ever fast a baby. And also that. Yes, also that. Do not fast a baby. Now, the mother died... But the baby did, thankfully, recover. There are inquests on these deaths, but no indictments because everybody's just like, eh, well, she's going to prison anyhow, so who cares? Her appeal is rejected, and at the end of 1913, she goes to prison, and of course, she fasts there. The Australian government basically bans writing anything to Dr. Linda Hazard, their postal service will not let anything addressed to her leave the country. Good. Yes. Good on Australia. Thank you for being smart. Dora, who Greg Olson's book kind of heavily implied, pretty much outright stated that she was having at least a flirtation with that British consul who helped a lot with their case, who was married. and uh, But she is set to marry an English clergyman from Gloucestershire. Two years after initially entering the penitentiary, Hazard is paroled. Samuel Hazard wrote a letter to the warden before she got out saying that there was no place for her because they were broke and the home was being rented out and he wanted her to have roving parole. (laughs) He does not want his wife to come home. He basically would just do everything... She said he was very compliant to her wishes. Also had a very interesting alcohol habit in that she did not approve of drinking. So he he hid it by going down and buying cases of vanilla extract from the store. 
And so he constantly smelled of vanilla. Yeah, that's, um, I guess that's a precursor to mouthwash. Yeah, yeah. So they don't give her the roving parole that he wanted, but they do pardon her. The governor says she can have a pardon if she leaves the country, which, fair. Yeah, get out of our country and you can you can be pardoned. Yeah. She does spend some time in New Zealand, continues administering her fasting cure there, and even publishes another book, Diet and... Diet in Disease and Systemic Cleansing. She comes back to Washington in 1920 and returns to building her sanitarium. And they do. They build it big. Must have made some money off some rich New New Zealanders. That's what they're called, right? I think so. Sure. She does have some arrests due to her tendency to going around acting as a doctor when she does not have a license. And also probably killing people. Yes, that too. And there are, yeah, there are some cases related to death. She gets a guilty verdict in 1925 for which she is fined $100. <laughs> yes. And in 1935, Starvation Heights does your favorite thing. Burns to the ground. Exactly. The community does come to help save what they can of the facility And interestingly, when someone tries to save the hand-carved oak double doors on the front of the main building, Samuel says, no, don't. They're insured. This is, uh... Yep. 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 In 1938, Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard fell ill. Good. So she did the only thing she knew to do and the only thing she believed would cure her, and she went on a fast. There... That, I, I believe, is, is its own poetic justice. But is it poetic justice if you bring it upon yourself? I don't know. Because you could argue that these patients did, in a way, bring it upon themselves. True, but she also brought it upon them. Yes, yeah. very much so. So, on the Wikipedia article about Linda Burfield Hazard, there's a list of deaths attributed to her hand. And there are 20 names. The last of them is Linda Burfield Hazard. She lived to the age of 70 and died of probably pretty much starvation, much like many of the people that she quote-unquote treated. Dora, there's some more sadness there. She marries her reverend, but he died just a few months later. He drowned. He had been cycling back from visiting another reverend and ended up in the canal The water was only four feet deep, but the thinking was that he had had a seizure and fell into the canal and then drowned. So, yeah. Dora did continue her traveling. She was even documented as a writer on One Ship's Manifest, where it asked for career. Don't know anything more about that, but she died in January 1945 at age 72. And that is the tragic and horrifying tale of Starvation Heights which is what the locals called it. It was Wilderness Heights, and it was also, you know, hazards, therapeutic, blah, 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 bunch of crap stuff. And then the locals, they saw so many emaciated people that they started calling it Starvation Heights. Which is pretty apropos for what was going on there, so. Very, very much so, yes. Yes. So, if you felt educated by that, and are also a little hungry right now, like me, uh, go ahead and go give us a 
five-star review on wherever you can review things. Apple Podcasts. I think there's a couple other ones. Tell me how much you love me. (laughs) That's essentially what all podcasters want. Tell us how much you love us. And also come by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Putting up media related to every case we cover. There is new material all the time. You can see lots of pictures and stuff like that. So it's kind of helps you get more into the case. I am thinking about debating whether to just start putting up just like one batch of pictures on Friday so that listeners who listen on Friday can just see all the things. See all the things. Because I wonder about that. Because I'm like, well, I try to spread it out so that there's content the full week. But then what about people who listen on Friday and they're like, well, there's no pictures yet. (laughs) Then they go next Thursday and the case is out of their mind at that point. So I am considering my strategies and debating which way to go. Well, let us know. Yes, you can absolutely let us know. Let us know on the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Shoot us an email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you don't feel like uh, joining the Patreon, which you would enjoy the Patreon. You would love the Patreon. But if you still want to get a shout out on the show, you can use that email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. To send us a couple bucks via PayPal, every little bit counts, and we are very grateful, and you'll also get a shout-out. Leave me a buck on the nightstand. Exactly. And then head out the door. Get the hell out. And do the walk (laughs) of shame. So so there's all that. And don't forget to go over to Short Story Short Podcast and listen to a friend of the show, Chris Garcia, and I talk about short stories. We're having a really good time over there. I'm also going to put a link to something. I believe it will be live by then. Uh, Chris Garcia also had me do a reading of a short story written by William Zeroyan, who I think I pronounced that right. And that's the uh, deceased author for whose estate he works as an archivist. And so he had me do a reading, and that'll be live, I think, this week. I just got a a Google alert about a press release that came out about it because I'm an egomaniac who has a Google alert for my name. There you go. And hardly anything ever comes up for it, so I was very surprised. (laughs) I didn't know you could do that, and I am also frightened by what people can find if they Google my name. (laughs) Yes, there is that as well. Know what I'm doing tonight. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll put a link to that so you can go listen to me uh, dramatically read a, a very heartbreaking short story about love and loss. And that's all I can think of. I probably have more bullshit, but I can't remember. And I haven't sang much during this episode. Not much to sing about. No, not really. It's it's not really a Broadway musical. <laughs> Certainly not. I would uh, probably really hold a lot of enmity for anybody who tried to make it one. <laughs> yeah. So. so I encourage you all to go eat some bread. Yes, yes. And we're gonna we're gonna eat some bread too. And what else are you doing this week, Amber? I am closing on my house in three more days. Yay! That is so exciting. Yay. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to have an office with windows because I work in a basement for the past year and a half. Yes. And today, somehow, a bee got trapped in the basement with me. No. And I had video meetings all day. So I'm on video as this bee has hit me in the face. Three separate times, this damn thing ran into my face, oh my and God. I'm trying to, like, keep my cool and not draw attention to myself because I'm on this meeting with 20 people who all make more money than me, 
And I'm just like, this is fine. Everything's fine. And, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, um, I am really looking forward to having windows and not being in a basement. And uh, I don't know what happened to that bee. And I hope I never see him again. He's now your mortal enemy. I am, uh, I've started doing something now. Everybody knows I'm, I'm rewatching the original Unsolved Mysteries. I'm on season five. That was my whole childhood. Yes, exactly. And I actually went back to Twitter, which I haven't been on my personal account for quite a while. I haven't really tweeted very much from there for a long while. And because I think I got all my social interaction needs out of our friend group Discord. Yeah. And so when everybody was quiet on Sunday, I was like, I'm going to tweet now. Also, they were proving that a guy was possessed by the devil by putting a paper bag over his head and having him touch different objects. So that needed, I, I took a picture of that on the television. I was like, well, here we go. This is a good place to start. So <laughs> it was a very weird case. It's a weird world. It's a weird world, as we've, we've learned in case after case after case years. So if you want to come and check out my live tweeting, I'll be doing more of it on the weekends because we watch more on the weekends. But maybe occasionally I'll pop up on weekdays. But I am KBAX writer, K-B-A-X writer over on Twitter. So come follow me and check that out. I would love to see any of our listeners there or, you know, just random people, which is all Twitter is. So I'm Amber Momster. <laughs> and uh, I post next to nothing but cute things my kids say and do. So if you want to not talk about murder, that's my personal. <laughs> I should add you to, you didn't have a Twitter when you first came on the show. I did not. So I should add you to the bio. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just got there. a Twitter and I'm still very bad at it. But mm -hmm. I, I did finally this last year be like, okay, I guess I need one. <laughs> I also found out that I, I drunkenly at some point made an Instagram that I've done nothing with. I don't even <laughs> recall making it. But my phone knew that I had done it and logged me in. And I was like, oh, damn, I have one of these. <laughs> That's me with, like, every account. It may not even have been me drunk, but I'm just on a website. Don't realize I've been there before. And suddenly I have an account. And I, I'm just like, how, when? I don't remember doing this. But we there's so many accounts and, and different websites and everything. And it's just, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it really does. So, so yeah, that is what we're doing this week. Uh, come see us on social media and such. And uh, thank you for listening to our filthy words and go get yourself something to eat. Bye. Bye. My sources for this episode were Starvation Heights, a true story of murder and malice in the woods of the Pacific Northwest by Greg Olson. Fasting for the Cure of Disease by Linda Burfield Hazard. Catherine Beck on History Link, Best Love Joy on Smithsonian Mag. Find a Grave, the Washington State Digital Archives, and on Tro, the Sydney Stock and Station Journal, on newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. The Oregon Daily Journal, the Tacoma Daily Ledger, and on the Library of Congress, the Minneapolis Journal, and the St. Paul Globe. I uh, do not have nearly that much. I have Starvation Heights by Greg Olson, because I was on vacation, and that's all I did. You were on vacation, and it was a well-earned one, and I hope you enjoyed yourself. Hitler in the balls. Yes, absolutely. Wow, that one peaked. <laughs> <laughs>
That's just the word balls on the screen there, peeking. I can I, I can see the peeking of my balls. <laughs> oh, it did it again. Yay. Yeah, it did it again. <laughs>